if you listen just now, you, you heard the general rush of people talking, the general decibel level, level, and then you heard it start to get a little quieter, you know, because about half the people had sat down and they were ready for the next parts. But some people were still talking, and I was standing over there. And um, just how strange and unsettling would it be when you come into a worship service and it came time for the preacher to get up, but he just kept standing over there. Can you imagine what that would be like? You'd be just like, you sit down, you sit down, the, the random person who just doesn't care about anything in the world, they're still talking with their buddy. But, but for the rest of us, we're all sitting here and we're waiting for what we think is about to happen, but it doesn't happen. And that wasn't my planned beginning, but I just the perfect picture of waiting awkwardly with some sense of unmet expectation yet. Waiting awkwardly with some sense of awkwardness and unexpected expectation. Today is the final Sunday of Advent. And in Advent, um, is, a, is a part of what's, what's known as the church year or the Christian year, which is celebrated in some traditions, but it, it grows out of Christian history. And, and Advent began to be a season of preparation for believers before Christmas, as far back as the first few centuries after Christ. So in the rhythm of Christian life for most believers who've been part of that broad uh, sweep through history, there's been a time of the year before Christmas that would be a season of preparation for Christmas, Advent. And more than anything else, Advent is about waiting. So if you're a blank filler-outer, Jenny, can you hear that? My wife, she's a much better student than I am, and quite honestly, was always smarter than me. We went to high school together, better grades than me. And when we listen to people preach, she's going to fill out the blanks a whole lot more often than I am. But if you're that person, Advent is about waiting. And just like the crowd here sort of was doing the normal deal, and then, then half of us sat down, and then the other half were still talking, but got lower in its decibel level, there's a sense uh, for me when it comes to the worship of God in general. And the coming of Jesus specifically, who is our king, that makes me feel that sense of waiting. And this morning, I want to bring all of us into that sense of waiting together and then point us to what we're waiting for. We go out of here ready to celebrate the birth of our king, looking forward to when he will come again in all the fullness of what is promised in him and through him is tangible and enacted. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. That's what you get for not having your notes open in front of you. Matthew 1 and verse 18. beginning at verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. There's a lot of things we can talk about when it comes to talking about Christmas. We could talk about Mary and Joseph and their travels. You could talk about the miracle of the virgin birth. You could talk about the star and the stable and all the story that surrounds it. You could talk about the incarnation, go deeply into the theology of God putting on flesh and coming into his creation as the God-man who was born to die and to rise on the third. But what I'd like to talk about from that passage this morning is just the word Emmanuel, just briefly. It said in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 that there would be a, a, a virgin who would give birth and that baby would be Emmanuel, God with us. If you see on your sheet that my, my topic this morning and my title this morning is that Jesus came to offer abundant life. And I, I want to just go ahead and say that sometimes for a person preaching, they have to realize that they themselves need to be sitting out there in the, the, the crowd listening, sitting under the word of God on this subject themselves. And I, I am that guy this morning. When I got this topic, I sort of laughed in my, in my head a little bit just at the irony. Because I am not a guy who has consistently felt abundance. One of the challenges that's been part of life for me has been sort of the, the arc of what's happened in my vocation. And I'll just give you a really, really brief version of the story. It's a much longer story, but uh, about, let's see, Christmas 17 years ago, uh, I was in the process of being interviewed and then raised up to a pastoral ministry position in my home church. I went to Bible college knowing I was going to be a pastor, desired to be a pastor, hoping that God would uh, call, you know, further call with the, not just the internal sense of calling, but the external sense of calling of being drawn up into ministry in a way that is uh, embraced by a church family. And I went back to my hometown and, you know, ended up being raised up in ministry in my home church. And I thought two things. I thought that I was going to be eventually a church planter, and I thought that I was going to stay in connection with that body of believers for the long haul because I was very connected there and Jenny was very connected there and we have friends there and we have family there. But about three years after I went on staff there, that church split. And it split badly. And then we ended up uh, serving, uh, pastoring on one half of that split. And, and then I was sent out as a church planter plant a town in the community down the road from us. That community down the road from us was, statistically speaking, the worst or just among the very worst communities in one of the four worst pockets of the 2007 to 2009 housing crisis mortgage collapse deal. And we planted just, just before that began to hit the news and hit what was happening. There's a, there's a story behind it, but after a couple of years, we ended up closing that church plant. So here I was as a young guy, very idealistic, very full of vision, thinking I'm going to be engaged with ministry in my home church, through my home church, in connection with these people, and, and, and hoping that I would be used in that way as one who would be a church planter, in connection, but sent out to plant new works. And over that nine-year period, the church that we had come from split, and I went out to plant a church only to see, you know, only to see it close. I was brokenhearted, and I left the ministry for a number of years, and then I, I came back into ministry uh, about four years ago right, right now. And I went to serve in a church in Houston, and we were called there. We were going to be the, uh, the number two pastor in a two-pastor situation. We were coming to serve with somebody. But on the day we unpacked the last box, literally, the day Jenny unpacked the last box, that couple came and let me know that, hey, we're separating. And, um, and they quickly divorced, and it was a very bad situation. And uh, it was a bad situation. The, the character in that uh, situation reflected the character of the church. It had been a church that was planted by 
by those folks, and um, uh, it ultimately ended up that the, the best thing as a pastor that I could do for those people after we had served there for a few years and knowing the situation was helping the people that we had go out and find a healthy church. Helping everybody in that church go and find a good, healthy church where they were able to be part of some of the rhythms of body life and the life of Christ that we all experience here at New Life, a healthy, functioning church that hadn't been part of the life of that church. It wasn't a church that was um, going to be turned around. It was a church that ought to close. And so I closed that church, not knowing what was going to happen next. We closed that church not having our next position lined up. We did it in faith, believing it was the right thing to do. And we waited a year. God provided for us in that year. That, that church family provided financially for my family for that whole year. And um, then we came here. Now, it's got nothing to do with Christmas, but it does have to do with a sense of unmet expectation. It does have to do with things going sideways. It does have to do with some of the things that can happen in all of our lives, doesn't it? And you, you all know, especially you guys, you know, a man's vocation but connects close to heart. And I will tell you, for many pastors, young guys coming into ministry, one of the things that they ultimately have to work through and work out is a sense of uh, deep connection to who they are going to be in Christ and what God is going to do in them and through them and, and how it's going to be awesome. And it can be almost like an idol. And it was that for me. And so through that hard experience, God sort of changed me, shaped me, made me into who I am today and, and who I wasn't when it started. And praise be to God, but I'm telling you something, it was not fun. It has been hard. And if you were to tell me that that reflected abundance, I would tell you to get your head checked. Christmas is about God coming into his creation as a baby in vulnerability and in weakness, dependent upon Mary to live and ultimately to die, to rise again, and then to commission his people to go to all the world and preach the gospel. And he gave them a promise <laughs> when he gave them the Great Commission. It's the ending verse of the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission comes with that great assurance. Jesus says to them, I am with you. When he was born, <laughs> it was said that he was fulfilling the prophet Isaiah's prophecy that one would be born from a virgin who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. I think what I want to tell you this morning as we walk through this uh, passage, and my, uh, the passage we'll be in, and then what I'm going to have to say about it, that in the God with us-ness is our abundance in this life. We live between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus Christ. Advent's about waiting. And so much of our worship is also about waiting, should be about waiting, needs to be about waiting, because if it's not about waiting, you will be heartbroken and you'll end up lost in your perspective. Like, why is it that all of these things don't happen the way that they happen, but that they should. Why isn't my life abundant? Well, that's not the promise. Because God is with you. That's the promise. And there will come a day of fulfillment when Christ returns. And every promise of abundance that Jesus spoke, that the New Testament speaks, and that the Old Testament speaks in advance of Christ and all that would come, all of those promises find their fullness in Jesus and all of those promises will be true forever in the new heavens, in the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where God dwells with man and all that is in him. That's the promise. If you don't know that that's the promise, then I want to help you see that this morning. So if you've ever taken a class on public speaking, one of the ways to do it is you're going to uh, tell people what you're going to say and then you tell them, and then at the end, you tell them what you told them. I've never done, I don't really try to do that, but I want to do that here right now. I just gave you my sermon. Um, God is with us, Emmanuel. Um, but 
let me just take you through what's on this sheet. So we're waiting, but we've got this beautiful offer of eternal life, this beautiful offer of abundance right there in the middle of our page. And I put it in the Amplified Bible to, to amplify what Jesus says in this verse. He says, I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. Now, I shared with you a moment of my own trial, my own challenges. This actually lasted for a long time, a moment. But would you just think of one of yours? Would you just think of something that you're aware of that has been a thing like that in your life, a real piece of brokenness? When you see this promise of Jesus where he says, I, or that's not, this, this offer of abundance that Jesus spoke in John 10, I came. Why did he come? Well, I came that they may have life, have and enjoy life, and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. Do you see and feel that contrast between that broken bit of experience and this offer? What we're going to see is that abundant life is life in the shalom of God. Shalom. Peace. Abundant life. I've got the equivalent sign. You're a math person. Abundant life is roughly equivalent to what the Old Testament talks about as life in the shalom of God, the peace of God, which is such an important picture of blessing and of salvation in the Old Testament that continues on into the New. And this, this verse references God has good things for his people. If you are in Christ, he has good things for you. Abundant life is roughly equivalent to life in the shalom of God. But there will be trials, and there may be crosses. Abundant life, roughly equivalent to life in the shalom of God. But there will be trials, and there may be crosses. And so Christian hope, the real, full-orbed, Hope in God, in Jesus Christ, infused and indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. Real Christian hope is an already and slash but not yet hope. Christianity is an already and, and slash but not yet hope. So I want to show you how that works and what does that, that mean and why it is so important for the season that we're in today, Advent, and the reality that we'll celebrate in a couple days, Christmas Eve, Christmas, and why it's so important, I think, to be rooted just in your life as a believer. Would you meet me in John chapter 10? In John 10, we're going to start in verse 1, but I guess I would like to say that in the chapters that precede this, there are five occurrences of either the people murmuring or Jesus receiving a threat or Jesus talking about the threat that he was under as he increasingly ended up on the wrong side of the Jewish leaders and even of the people. A few chapters before this is where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then says that he is the bread of life and that having life means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so it's sort of the, the, the picture of the cresting of Jesus' popularity, and then all of a sudden people stop getting what he's doing, and people stop buying what he's selling, and there's these stories of opposition. And, and, and then the one before this, immediately before this, is when Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And they, they bring him in, and the, the, the Jewish leaders say, who did this for you? Because, the, because he was healed on the Sabbath, and they were out for Jesus, and they wanted something to be able to kind of hang him on. And who, who did this? And his parents, they, they asked his parents first. His parents didn't want any part of it because they understood the dynamics that were at play. And they said, uh, he, uh, we know he was born blind, and we know he's our son. What happened? You'll have to ask him. And they brought him in, and he said, I, I don't really know. What, I know who did it. I don't know how he did it. What I know is that I was blind, and now I see. And he, he just told them what had happened, and he identified himself with it and with the miracle that was done for giving him sight, and the leaders of the community excommunicated him. So this comes in a 
part of the Gospel of John. You know, there, there were not chapter and verse um, divisions in the original Greek. Those are there for us to be helpful to us. But it flows right on into this passage. And look with me at verse 1. This shows Jesus as the good shepherd. And I just want to say, he is our good shepherd. And these are some of the things that in this passage we can see that he does and that he does for us. Chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought all, out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus calls to his sheep. They hear his voice. He speaks to them, calling them by name. And he speaks to us, calling us by name, because he is our good shepherd, Emmanuel, God who is with us. Verse 5. He also, I'm sorry, he leads us to good pastures. That is there as well. He, the sheep hear his voice. Then he leads them out after he calls them by name. It's an image of safety. The good shepherd takes care of his sheep. They know his voice because he's speaking to them. He knows them. He calls them by name. And what he does, he leads them out and takes them to good pastures. Verse 4. And when he has uh, brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. In this figure of speech, Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them, so Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. He's saying the, the false messiahs that would pop up in Israel from time to time, he says to them, I'm the door for the sheep. I'm the one through whom they come into safe pasture. The rest of those false messiahs, they're thieves. They're robbers. He was also saying in the context of the conflict that had developed between him and his opposers, the Pharisees, and those who were surrounding them that wanted to do something to dispose of this problem that they had with Jesus. He's saying, I'm the door. They're thieves and robbers. Bad shepherds. Seize me. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. What does the good shepherd do? He saves his sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd and he saves us. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And that brings us to the verse that I have on the sheet today. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And it goes down from there in verse 11 and in verse 17 and 18. And it's the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And it says down later that he has authority to lay it down. And it also says that he lays down his life to take it up again because he has authority to take it up again. And so not only does he offer us life abundance, but he lays down his life for us. He knows us and enables us to know him back. And then he promises that he will take his life up again. And I want to tell you that if you are in him, the balance of the teaching of the whole Bible is that he will rise again and you will too. He will rise again and so will you. And it is then that we will experience the life that is truly life. So many gathered here yesterday in this church family for the funeral of a very young and godly man involved in the life of this church. The reason we don't grieve as those who have no hope is that we know we are not living our best lives now. We know that we will live our best lives 
only then, and we are people who are content in the brokenness, in the pain, to say that Jesus has come and he has saved and he is king and he is Emmanuel, he is God with us, but there are things that are not yet full. There is brokenness and sin and pain in this world and it affects everything. It affects careers that go sideways. It affects cancer. But he laid his life down of his own accord, of his own authority. And he took it back up again of his own accord and of his own authority. And he ascended to heaven. And when he did, he said to his disciples, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, he is Emmanuel with you right here, right now, in this time between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus. He rose, and we will too. Here's something that can be confusing. In my own life, I've had to wrestle through. The offer that Jesus makes of abundant life really is an offer of abundant, full, extraordinary life. It's not just in this one offer that he makes it. In the upper room, he says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 7, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One of the most famous uh, teachings that comes from the Gospels is Jesus teaching about he is the vine and we are the branches. And he calls us to abide in him. He says, abide in me and I will abide with you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I with him, he it is who will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You abide in me and my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Abide in my love. And he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And in my absolute favorite invitation that Jesus gives, my most, my most close to my own heart invitation and offer of life that Jesus ever said is in Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30, when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon. Learn from me, for I am gentle and meek and humble of heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or how about these offers from the, the book of Revelation? In Revelation 3, it has, it has the king, Jesus, saying this, Those whom I love I, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I love that. The one who conquers, I will bring him to sit with me to sit with me on my throne just as the Father uh, is sitting on his throne and I'm sitting with the Father and you'll sit with me. We'll all be sitting together. You'll be as one who has conquered. Or this at the end of Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come, receive, take, 
have it. And it's not just what Jesus said. It's not just what the rest of the New Testament says. It's the Old Testament too. The promise of God to his people is for a good circumstantial future that is holistic and involves all of life. Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal and the foal of a donkey. I'm sorry, a coal? Coal, no, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the end of the earth. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or dis, uh, decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lay down with the lamb. The leopard shall lay down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's nest. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is the kicker. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is a thorough, holistic, all of life, including our circumstances, offer of abundance that is held out to you and to me by Jesus in the New Testament. By the Old Testament, the full totality of the truth of God says that there is and will be all kinds of good for the people of God. And last week, in the newspaper. First of all, you grab the newspaper, you find bad news all the time. That's what it's there for. But last week, there's a, a little cover in the metro and state section about blue Christmas services. Special services that some churches have for those who mourn or are grieving during the Christmas season. It's very possible to be in a place in your life where you're like, I don't understand that contrast. And when you are at that place in your life, I want to tell you, I think it can impact everything about how you engage God. It can impact how you worship. It can impact how you engage Him in His Word and pray. Because how can you do these things when the story doesn't make any sense? But the story makes sense. In the beginning, God made a garden. He made the world, and he made it right, and he made it beautiful, and in that world that was beautiful and right, there was a garden that was thoroughly perfect, holistically good, with man and woman in the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day. But our first parents chose something else. They chose a different story. They chose a different God. They chose independence. 
They chose withdrawing from the right way to engage life together. They were cast out. All of human history springs forth out of that reality. In the fullness of time, the God who made the garden came, was incarnated in human flesh. It says in John chapter 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love how, how that verse is uh, rendered in the message from Eugene Peterson. It says that the word came, the word, the logos, God himself, the God who created, came in flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. And we beheld his one-of-a-kind glory. I love that. God created. Our first parents fell. Human history comes from that, and we see the effects all around us. But in the fullness of time, God came in flesh. Jesus came. Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended and commissioned a people who have gone forward in the world as the church, making disciples, raising high the banner. You see these flags up here on the roof. Raising high the banner of King Jesus in the world. But we know that after he has come this first time and done what I've just said, his kingship in the world does not yet affect everything. There are not infants playing over the top of cobra holes. There aren't all the realities of the passages of Scripture that I read to you one after the other after the other. It hasn't happened yet. The way the story makes sense is to understand that you are one who has been saved and redeemed by the work of the King in His first incarnation. But not until His second coming, the second advent, when all things are made new, will all those promises be fully enacted, be fully operative in the life of his people and therefore in your life. And so sin plagues. And so all kinds of brokenness are woven through every part of our lives and society. It's the world that we're in because the king has come but the fullness of all that is promised and all that will belong to his people has not yet come. But it will come. And so Advent has always been a season that reflected on the two comings of the king and how we live in the time in between those two times. That's the only way that the story makes sense, right? That's the only way that the story of the king who came as a baby and all of these promises belong to and in him, and it says later on in the New Testament that all of the promises of God find their fullness in Jesus. The only way the story makes sense is to understand that it's not just his first coming that we reflect on and that we celebrate and that we have a heart connection to. We are the people who live between that one and this one, and we wait for that abundance. We wait for that shalom. We wait for that fullness. And in between, we do have the very special promise of Emmanuel, God with us. When you step back, it's, it's so deep and rich, mystical, and hard to understand. But I wanted to take us down into there this morning because... Honestly, I don't think for my own, just for my own self, and my own experience, that there is any way for me to understand what the Bible has offered me in line with the experience of my life, or for me to understand what God has promised to his people in view of what I see as the experience of his people in different places over these last 2,000 years, and yet to today. Turn with me over in your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. 
I told you where the story starts. And I told you where we are in the story. And here's where the story will find its final climax. Because then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Well, well, when was the last time that happened? When was the last time that the dwelling place of God could be said like this? The dwelling place of God is with man, is in the, in the garden. Adam and Eve, with God himself, with God walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. There is coming a day where it can be said again, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what's coming. And that is when we will experience the fullness of all that is promised. Abundant life. Total shalom and peace from God. In all of our bodies, in all of our dealing, in all of our work, in all of our relationships, in all of our families, we have that coming if we include you. And we are the people of God who are in Jesus Christ. Do you know it? Does he know you? That passage in John 10 I read says that he calls their voice, or calls their name, they know his voice. The people of God know the shepherd. But he calls them by name because the shepherd individually knows his sheep in this illustration. I mean, there could be a shepherd, I'm sure there are, that don't know the, their sheep by, by one, by name. The good shepherd in the picture that Jesus paints in John 10, he calls to them and they know his voice. He calls them by name because he knows them, cares for them, brings them in. Do you know him? Does he know you? That's what's promised then. Right now, here is, I'm just going to say from me, here's my abundance. The Spirit of God is in me. He brings hints, shadows, small tastes of all the good that he's promised. I love those tastes. Jenny and I just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. I, I taste a lot of the goodness God in my home, my family. We had a great day yesterday. Jenny's mom is in town. We played uh, Ticket to Ride in the afternoon. I, I'm not the best board game guy. Um, I destroyed everyone. Like, by a million points, it was crazy. What a good day. <laughs> Shalom. <laughs> Abundance. But then, in the evening, uh, Gracie and Carson and Caleb and I, we got just just around the house, just enjoying life, tasting. I'll tell you what, I, I love and feel called to preach the gospel and, and to be a servant in the church. It's a privilege to pastor. And I, I, I'm thankful, though I've shared earlier some struggles along the way, that God has shaped and made me who he has and for the work that he's called me to. And I'm, I'm thankful here to do it. I, I, I taste and feel it sometimes when I'm in the word, when I'm in prayer, and in the, 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 the habits that lead to the experience of abundance in Christ. There's tastes. But every single day, my abundance is that in the spirit and the providence of God and all of his resources for me, that I belong to the good shepherd. Emmanuel, God is with me. 
So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though you may walk as a Christian through the valley of the shadow of death, and even though you might stay there for a long while, I will fear no evil. For Emmanuel, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. You may walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't have to fear it and your cup can still overflow. In your pain, in your sorrow, in depression, in anxiety, in all of the mess, in all of the brokenness. And he ends with saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So just to wrap this all up, do you know that one of our favorite songs for Christmas is not actually a Christmas song. It's an Advent carol. It's an Advent carol that was written uh, so we could sing the promises of Scripture by one of the Christianity's greatest um, hymn writers in the, English, uh, in the English language, Isaac Watts. It went way, way, way back. Joy to the world is not about the baby in the manger. Joy to the world is not primarily about even the first Advent. The first coming, Christmas. It's not really about that. And also, it didn't have the same tune when it was written. But that's got nothing to do with nothing. I just think that's interesting. Joy to the World is a second Advent hymn. Let me show you. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven to nature sing. Is there anything about that that hasn't happened yet? Can you go back to the one? No. The Lord has come. So there's a call for earth to receive and let our hearts be prepared with gladness to make room for him. Second verse. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains Repeat their sounding joy. Has that happened yet? Already, sure, but not yet. See that? The Savior reigns already. There is a sense in which he will reign fully and finally that he does not reign yet. It's waiting on the second advent. While fields Floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. There is a sense in which all of nature wells up in praises to God, but there are tsunamis and there are earthquakes. There are terrible things that happen. I remember when I was a kid, I got a chance to go to Italy and we got to visit Pompeii. I'll tell you something. All the creation does not always well up in full worship for all creation right now groans in longing for the revealing, right? So not, not really yet. There's a third verse that we don't have the words for. Um, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. This idea of uh, no longer thorns infesting the ground. Because he's come to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. That hasn't happened yet. His blessing is advancing as the gospel moves forward among the nations, among his people, reaching folks who are far away from the people of God, people like us. And like those we serve, when we go out in mission, like those we serve, when we go out in our neighborhoods. But there are still thorns in the ground. There is still infestation. And there is still a sense in which his blessing 
is not as fully expressed and known in the way that the curse is found. So yeah, it's all ready. Not yet, though. And finally, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Does Jesus rule the world today with truth and grace? Of course he does. He is the king. But that is expressed in the context of his people. And it is not the case that Jesus rules the entire earth in the way that he will on that day. He rules the world with truth and grace. Already, but not yet. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. There is a drawing together happening right now of people into one people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation of every race of every place it's happening but it has not finished yet so the nations proving the glories of his righteousness the wonders of his love that is growing it's a growing reality based in what already happened but it hasn't yet fully finally happened do you see that we're going to sing that and so Christmas and the coming of Jesus, coming to seek and save the lost, connects to what, we, what I talked about at the very beginning, this reality of waiting. We are waiting for the return of our king. We are waiting for the fullness of abundance. We're waiting. Waiting is hard. Waiting can hurt. Waiting can be cloudy and hard to make sense of sometimes. I asked earlier, do you know him? If you're here this morning, if you know the Lord, and if you don't know the Lord, you probably expected the preacher to say something of that sort this morning. Do you know him? But I want to say something, though, to all of us, invitation for all who are in Christ. Do you know him that way? Do you know him in the story? Do you know him with waiting that can make sense of the things that are not by looking forward to the thing that will be? I invite you to it. Know him in that way. Celebrate him that way. With joy to the world, with sobriety and waiting, experiencing the tastes of what is to come that gives you a deeper longing for what is to come. Pray with me. Father, we just ask that you would take uh, the truth of your word and drill it deep down in us where we need to receive it, and that you would bring forth fruit. I pray that as we sing right now, joy to the world, that you would cause connections to happen in hearts that would be catalytic, catalytic to further worship, catalytic to further giving of ourselves to you, the king who has come, the king who is coming. In Jesus' name I pray.